0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today in the studio with me, I have Stephen Dickens. Now, Stephen Dickens, you're the global offering manager for the Z Cloud, as they say in the North American, or Z Cloud in our world, uh, at IBM. And you're based in uh, Poughkeepsie in New York, USA. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Des. Great to be with you this afternoon. <clears throat> now, I should
0: mention that. Um, We've caught up a couple of times, and in fact, I think the last time we caught up was in sunny old Las Vegas at the uh, IBM Interconnect event,
1: hanging out there. Yeah, it, with, was, uh, it was good to catch up there. It was a pretty wild event, but uh, yeah, it was good. It was certainly good to catch up.
0: It was like 23,000 close and personal friends, uh, um, <laughs> but we had some great conversations around all the things that you do, which we're going to cover today, and uh, I was fascinated by a number of key topics, which is why I've been so keen to get you in the studio, because I think there's some things that you're doing now that are, are groundbreaking in, the, in in what people are trying to do in the world in general around cloud and containerization and big data and streaming analytics and Hadoop, in a space that people might not normally expect it to be, and that is on the mainframe. Um, so, but I think, why don't we kick straight into um, a, like one of the key topics that this drives out of, and that is... Um, cloud in general and then we'll sort of walk through uh, your open mainframe project and then the linux one project and then we'll talk about mainframe in general Um, when people think about cloud they don't tend to think about mainframe do they
1: no they don't i mean I i think the industry's kind of obsessed with cloud equals aws cloud equals you know rackspace it equals amazon it equals google um and it's by definition, x86 or sort of Windows, Linux-based workloads, whereas I see it a, a certainly a broader definition than that. And compute, c- computing in the cloud, for me, is more a destination than a particular technology. Right. Um, so, so we're seeing people wanting to move off-premise, move into multi-tenant architectures, move to a more consumption model, And they're wanting all of those inherent benefits of a cloud computing model, but they're wanting to do that with their mainframe in the same way that they want to do that with on-premise x86 workloads and move those to the cloud. They want to do the same with mainframe workloads and and move those to the cloud. So I I think, for me, cloud's a broader term than maybe the industry sees it is. And when we certainly approach senior leaders and say, we'd like to support your cloud first strategy and move you to a cloud model there's sometimes some surprise there as we say and yes we mean that in the mainframe space
0: right well you know your role as global offering manager for the the Z cloud um in the context of all of that maybe just give us some insight and in kind of what what that looks like and, and even maybe just a quick background on yourself i mean how did you come to be at ibm and how did you come to be in this space of mainframe and then how did that you know transmogrify in many ways because it's a sense of magic into cloud which which aren't always you know n- naturally something we think about as you said um maybe just quick background yourself and and an out, outline of kind of what it means to be the global offering manager for the the z cloud z cloud
1: yeah happy to do that so really uh, sort of mainframe is a is bookends to my career if you will so i kind of left college, ended up working at Computer Associates for three years, kind of straight out into the world of mainframe computing and and had three very happy years at, at CA, then moved into a world of distributed computing with HP and then I've been at IBM these last seven years. So the, the kind of mainframes, the beginning and end of, well, I, I hope not the end of my career, the point <laughs> I'm at, maybe the point I'm at at the moment. The at current least. pinnacle. <laughs> yeah, the current pinnacle. Um, so I think what the offering manager role means within IBM is you're really that owner of the business for that particular offering. There's lots of people in IBM who get up, who think about lots of different things. Um, we've got Obviously, our senior leadership team who are responsible for different parts of our business. But the offering managers within our organization are singularly focused on one thing, and they'll be focused on it from a development point of view, a go-to-market point of view, a sales, pricing, partner strategy, working with ecosystem partners, but for one solution area. So the offering manager role really makes you almost as... And, and some of us offering managers laugh when um, IBM describes it this way, but almost the general manager of a, of a single single business line. Right. So it's, you get to experience everything from chatting to clients one minute, chatting to partners and business partners the next, yeah. then ju- jumping on with our finance team. And then the next minute, you're down in the guts of service delivery and, and development of the offering. So it's a really broad church of responsibility. And, and I moved out of sales about three years ago in order to do this just because I wanted to get that business overall perspective. And it's been a really exciting last three years working on some of the open technologies and, and really developing out our cloud proposition.
0: I can only imagine. And I, I like that phrase. I'm going to write that down, the broad church of responsibility. I'm going to steal that for my next uh, talk. Um, <laughs> You're welcome
1: to it, Dave. You're welcome. Yeah.
0: I'm going to put it on some T-shirts for you and quote you. It, it seems to me like that pedigree you were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, of – um. Computer Associates, which from my experience was predominantly software-focused, and then HP with distributed computing and hardware. That seems to me where you've got a really good background now in, in all the things you're talking about, where you've got the big iron over the mainframe platform, but really the the magic is kind of the software inside it in many ways because you know, at the end of the day, hardware um, you know, is only part of the puzzle really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's given me... Um, a perspective across all parts of the industry it's been really interesting as we've moved into some of the more into the linux space with the mainframe and more into the cloud computing space understanding and speaking fluent x86 and understanding and 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 understanding we were talking about containers we're talking about what the that means in an x86 world and being able to translate that and, and bring that across over to over to the mainframe space.
0: Now, we were talking earlier about what it actually meant to have cloud on the mainframe. Uh, I'd like to just touch on that quickly because when we think about mainframe, and, and, and in fact, you gave me a really good one line which I'm going to use here, and that is that you know a lot of people think about mainframe and they think about legacy systems, they think about old big iron. Uh, but you had a really great line that I'm going to steal here, where you you referred to. The mainframe is essentially the equivalent of the Porsche 911, and that is that in 1964, when sort of mainframe became a thing and 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 really hit the market uh, some years ago, it was essentially the same year that the Porsche 911 came out. And um, you know, you, you made a great comment around the fact that the you know, if you buy a Porsche 911 today, um, the only thing that's really the same as the Porsche 911 is the badge on the back of it. There are you no know, you know, no old parts, no old software, no brake linings. And and that's the same for the mainframe platform. In that, is it? It's not forty-year-old hardware. It's not sixty-year-old software. It's not a hundred-year-old developers, is it? I mean, the the mainframe today is, is 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 on par, if not ahead, in some ways, the with other technology stacks such as the x eighty six
1: and and other platforms that we've seen come and go. Is is that a fair yeah, comment? Definitely, definitely. I mean, you look at some of the highlights from the technical spec sheet of the mainframe. You know, five gigahertz processor. Yeah. I don't know of an Intel box running a 5 gigahertz processor, you know, so uh, – and that's the current machine. I am have the privilege of working out of our Poughkeepsie Labs, which is, you know, pretty much the home of the mainframe, and I'm good friends with some of our hardware development engineers. What they've got for, planned for the next box, you know, is is going to be truly groundbreaking. Right. So, yeah. I think – and when it, it frustrates us as we sit here in Poughkeepsie often and we see the pictures where we, we talk about the mainframe and you know, the press will pick it up. And there's a, a picture from 1964 of a computer taking up an entire room with women with beehive haircuts and, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and miniskirts. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and that's the picture of the mainframe. And then the press will pick up that, the, uh, you know, if there's a, if there's any issues with a client it'll be the 40 year old mainframe was at, the, at the at the source of some of those right. issues i don't know anybody running a 40 year old mainframe No, there's some customers on maybe 10 or 12 year old mainframes but i'd argue there's also people running you know windows 7 in yeah. production
0: well you know so look at the latest virus that's hitting the world right it's 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 attacking machines that are predominantly you know xp for example and and airlines and banks and atms that are running this old software are being uh, uh, taken over or pwned as they say and then encrypted hard drives uh, and then a big red screen with a lock on it well that you know they have 15 16 year old operating systems
1: yeah so i mean you don't hear when it windows launched the new version of windows 10 oh this is a 30 year old operating system yeah yeah but windows has been around for 30 years yeah. so i think the mainframe if people actually get past some of those sepia toned kind of images and actually (laughs) engage with our engineers and the people who are driving this platform forward. You know, I was talking to the guys today about APM technology. You was chatting to our ecosystem VP about what we're doing with Docker. Um, You know, chatting to one of the guys over lunch about the projects he's doing with MongoDB. All of these are technologies that run on the mainframe. So and, and, perhaps and i think some of the bias would be yeah. would be my and, and and understand what the technology can actually do
0: and it shouldn't be surprising to those i mean I think um i i we were talking when we were talking earlier I mentioned that i was on stage recently to a government conference talking about some of the new technologies that are coming out and I had the same frustration um and you know i I'm nearly 50 I'm getting old and 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 the kids on the stage were half my age and I love their energy I love their exuberance but I kind of got cross with them away in front of a room full of people saying, look, you know, you haven't done any history. You haven't looked at where you've come from. All the stuff that you're talking about, whether it's MongoDB or Docker or Kubernetes or whatever, whether it's Spark or Hadoop or Cassandra, you know, you think that these are things that have just been around for the last year or so, and they haven't. They've been around for quite a while. But the technology stack, the operating systems, I mean, these didn't just happen the day you were born, you know. And they're always really surprised. And I, I, I sort of reverse it and look at them and say, well, I'm surprised that you're surprised because why would you assume that just because some new database technology has come out a couple of years ago that it should only run on the new tin like you know and and i always love the look on their face but when we think about um when we think about what we're talking about it's it's forgivable in many ways that a lot of the sort of funky new technologies are seen as being only x86 cloud space because that's essentially all they've known and when when i look at a lot of these startups they're what we call cloud natives and in many ways the the Azures and the AWSs are all they've known, and they've they generally don't broaden their wings and fly further uh, you know and, and look at something like Z cloud um, and but I think when we look at where the bulk of the heavy lifting's been done, it isn't Facebook and it isn't twitter it's it's you know it's it's banking and wealth management and 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 finance in general insurance. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of like 10 things that sometimes just amaze these young developers when I say, Well, when did you build a la-, You know, when did you last build a banking system or a wealth management platform or some insurance business or an airline or flight management or booking system? Or when did you last re engineer the entire platform for a state or federal government? Or show me the biggest retailer you've done with that isn't just, you know, selling toys on eBay um, or, or medical systems or defense or transport logistics and telco and, you know, these really big enterprise workloads that in my mind i think you know they they've been looking for cloud capability but they've been on your platform for ages and and as in decades and they want to stay on that platform but they're looking for the new great technologies and surely that's where you're going with the the, the z cloud that you're giving them that capability for those um not so much traditional but those very big heavy workloads that have needed some of the the big iron um they're not going to just go and throw that in, in a public cloud are they, they they're looking for what you're hopefully providing which is the, the this big iron and, and workload platform that uh, they've they've been used to for decades is is that right
1: yeah, for sure I mean people have got a lot of business logic built into their mainframe um, they've over those decades codified their business into those applications, and those applications have therefore become very intrinsic to how those businesses function yeah you know you look at you look at saber in the airline industry you chat to some of the retailers about their supply and logistics i had the pleasure of working with a uk retailer um who's actually a public reference for us so i can talk about it tesco's okay what what they what they do is they run their entire supply chain on the mainframe platform so When that mainframe, if it was to go down, it would actually stop tins of beans going from the warehouse to going on the shelves. This isn't some cool web front end around some little promotion. No. It's tins of beans going from the warehouse to going onto the shelf. Now, that's maybe not sexy. It maybe doesn't grab the headlines.
0: It's not a funky 140-character tweet, is it? It's a a 140-character skew that sits on the shelf that mums and dads are buying to make dinner for some kid on Saturday. Yeah, Um, but
1: if if you talk to the CTO or CIO of that business, what they're obsessed with is making sure that that tin of beans is there, always there. And that whenever I walk into a Tesco's, so I can take that tin of beans, yeah, yeah. Walk, walk to the point of sale, and hand over my money. That's the fundamentals of a retail business. Well, now and those systems run on the mainframe for that for that business and. Certainly, yeah. lots of other businesses around the world,
0: and no one went broke because a Facebook post or a, or a Pinterest post or a tweet didn't make it to the to the cloud. But um, certainly, companies will go broke in that supply chain because I think you know when people talk about supply chains, they don't really understand the depth of what it means to go from. Stuff growing in the field, stuff being shipped to a processing plant, it being put into a tin, the tin being made and manufactured and shipped to the same processing plant, packed, sealed, a label being put on it, put it in another box, put it in another truck, shipped to a holding area, shipped to a a wharf then shipped to another country and then put another holding area and then put into a warehouse and then fulfilled into distribution and then from distribution to the retail centers and the retail centers to the stores from the store warehouse into the shelf from the shelf to you and going picking it up and walking and then the inverse of it going from the shelf to the the point of sale and point of sale to a shopping bag shopping bag to home to back on another shelf you know that end-to-end process um has to work every time all the time 24 7 right and I think somewhere in the rush to this dot-com boom and, and sort of through the web 2.0, sort of chasing unicorns, uh, if you'll forgive the, the terminology, um, you know, we kind of forgot that we forgot which platform was actually powering some of the most mission-critical systems that have been in place for decades, haven't we?
1: Yeah, I mean, another example would be banking. You know, all of us now are very I, – I, I bank with a bank that the nearest branch is over 100 miles away. Right. I, I probably go into that branch – two or three times a year maximum all of my banking's done online and 90 percent of what i do online i do on my phone so that's the sort of experience that people think and they say oh you know that's done on my iphone and then obviously that goes to the cloud somewhere and that's where people's thought process stops of how me checking my bank balance is complete as a as a transaction yeah what they don't realize is that there's a mainframe sitting behind both of those systems of engagement that's handling the system of record that says what's going on in my checking account yeah what what payments went out yesterday what payments came in you know and gives that balance update and i would switch banks if i couldn't get to that information instantaneously uh, absolutely. So, well, twenty four seven. You know, I want to check my balance at three o'clock in the morning. I don't want to check it nine till three thirty in banking hours. I want to <laughs> check it every, yeah. every on a Sunday afternoon. I want to check it at two o'clock in the morning, just when I'm at an airport. You know, I, I want to check it all the time, and, yeah. and that comes back to a mainframe platform that's got to run twenty four by seven, three six five.
0: And there's a level of high availability that comes with that. You know, when you're talking about your background in CA and software, I mean, they they built some of the biggest systems in the world. When you're talking about your background in distributed computing in HP, again, you know, they built some pretty big pieces of tin. But, but a lot of the times the reference architecture that some of those projects and some of those firms used came out of the work that that IBM had done in the mainframe space in just keeping things running all day and night um you know I I did a bit of homework on on kind of what we were going to cover just in the mainframe space just to put some context in it and I'm going to run it through quickly uh, because I I, again you know and then maybe we'll jump into the kind of the the open mainframe project topic next but um you know as of today, 70% of enterprise data still sits on a mainframe, apparently, and, and I've got a whole bunch of data to support that. Um, over 70% of the Fortune 500s globally run their core business systems on mainframe. You know, And you say these things and people look at you if they're shocked because they've spent the whole day on Twitter and LinkedIn. You know, 92 out of the top 100 banks in the world still run their core banking systems on mainframe. And, you know, as I say, and I keep saying mainframe, I think, you know, every time I say that, people sort of probably have a negative connotation. But this is surely a positive thing. Um, you know, you talked about Tesco and the retailers. Well, it turns out that 23 out of the top 25 retailers on the planet still use mainframe. Uh, and they're not running 40-year-old software, right? And and now here's the one that blew me away. Out of the top 10 insurance companies on the planet, um, after and I actually called a couple of colleagues who are CEOs for some of those brands, uh, and one in the UK, one in Europe, and a couple in Australia here. Um, ten out of ten of the insurance companies that I could I could find um, in the top ten are dedicated, 100% running their insurance platform on mainframe, which just blew me away. That's 100% of them, um, and it goes on. Like you know, I, uh, I know in the US, for example, I saw a report recently where 225 out of the state and, and local government um, organizations in the US just wouldn't put anything anywhere other than mainframe. You know, and it goes on and on. I mean, defense, you name it. You know, missile systems are not run by uh, uh, stuff running on public cloud, right? Um, so there's a whole bunch of work on opening this platform up, and I know that you also um, head up and, and drive a whole bunch of activity around a topic called Open Mainframe. Maybe just give us a quick summary on kind of what Open Mainframe is and, and where it came from and, and, and what you're doing with it currently.
1: So Linux on the Mainframe has been around since 1999, um, but what we were seeing was just an explosion of open source So if you look at the sort of first few years of Linux on this platform, it was people running enterprise software on an open operating system. So they were wanting to bring their oracles, their web spheres, their DB2s, but run it on an open platform. What we saw sort of two, three years ago was an explosion of people wanting to run the likes of Mongo, Postgres, um, Node, you know, you name it, the the poster child yeah. um, group, group within the open source community. And what they were looking for was some of the natural characteristics that we just see as the mainframe. Performance, availability, scale, security, those kind of four tenants, if you will, of the mainframe platform. So what we were keen to do is find a natural home within the open source community where those players could come together and collaborate. Right. So we appro- we approached the Linux Foundation, um, which is kind of where the industry tends to gather. The Linux Foundation do a great job of kind of hosting and being that neutral third party. So we approach them, and, and they've got a collaborative project structure with it. I think it's almost approaching 30 collaborative projects now, everything from the Open Container Initiative, um, through OpenStack, through um, the Open Drone project, um, yeah, automotive-grade yeah, yeah. Linux. You know, there's a, a number of collaborative projects. So we approached the Linux Foundation to really try and give us a natural home and and for them to be a steward for us. So two years ago, um, in August, we launched the Open Mainframe project. And I've got the real pleasure of sitting on the board for that as IBM's representative. Fantastic. And we've got clients on the board with us. We've got academic institutions, we've got software vendors, we've got business partners. There's a whole sort of smorgasbord, board, if you will of of people involved in and caring about pushing forward Linux on this platform um, so we've we've had people like docker just recently join us um, Ubuntu or there Sousa, um, as I say clients such. As um, as ADP, the largest user of Linux on the platform, actually the world's seventh largest managed service provider, if you uh, if you believe some of the reports, uh, and they run their um, their business on Linux. So one in seven paychecks in the U.S. is generated by ADP, wow. and that runs. Yeah, and that runs on a Linux platform on the mainframe. So, you know, just that natural home. For, for Linux and collaboration, so the ability to bring together what sometimes might be competitors to develop and collaborate, and bring forward you know new open source projects that ultimately find themselves onto GitHub, um, but do that in an open collaborative way with the with the Linux Foundation as an and natural home. So the the Open Mainframe project's been a really exciting couple of years. We've we've more than doubled the membership. Um, We've taken eight interns through last year, and we've got another eight starting their projects in the next week or so. Um, so, really, a, a sort of broad objectives there to to really push forward Linux on the platform.
0: And I think the the thing we've seen from IBM, and and this definitely uh, fits into that worldview that I'm getting now, where um, you know. IBM's an old, long, solid brand, and and often when people look at that, if it isn't like you said the you know, the poster child or the Web 2.0 sort of cloudy space, people looking and go, oh well, it's it's been long around for a long time and it's old, but but there's you know it's a brand that just continually reinvents in it, itself and continually disrupts itself, and um, when when you when you hear you talk about uh, when we hear, we hear you talk about this sort of stuff where it's open source on mainframe, when it's open technologies on mainframe, that you're um, that you've you've approached the Linux Foundation, what what we're really hearing is that that a, um, a company that's been running for decades and decades and decades is reinventing itself and adopting new design patterns, new design principles, new methodologies, adopting that whole open source space. And I, I remember when at the uh, the first day at Interconnect in Las Vegas, in fact, we called it day zero because day one, two, three was sort of the traditional IBM event. But day zero, there was a an open tech uh, sort of mini forum uh, for a day, and it was all the open source uh, community sort of coming together around what was happening with the event. And... I was talking to dozens and dozens of folks just trying to get the general sense of, you know, what they thought of it. And what was interesting was lots of people were really positively surprised to see a company like IBM uh, adopting all this. And I said, well, but they've been doing this for, for decades, you know. Um, and so I think it's a really healthy thing to see a large organization uh, going to the likes of these open source communities, particularly the Linux Foundation, and, and getting that stewardship. I remember talking to um, uh, Joe Speeds from the IBM Watson um, Autolabs IoT team. And he said something very similar that when, when he first got into his role there, he realized there was a whole bunch of technology and IP that was within IBM that only IBM could ac- get access to. And so he spent a couple of years of his role just getting out there and looking at taking some of the tech and giving it away for free and, and opening it and making sure that MQTT and other things were available to the whole planet as a as a, a good standard. And I think this is what we're really saying here, that you know, you've got this um, very solid... Foundation of hardware, you've got a good operating system platform to main, to, in the mainframe uh, software stack, but now you're bringing in the likes of uh, open technologies like um, Linux, and I know that you know Spark and Hadoop and MongoDB and some of these things. I mean, when people look at new software stacks, they don't often start thinking mainframe, but the reality is, it's it's there, it's solid, it's stable, and when you've got companies like Tesco and you're talking about ADP running one in seven payrolls, uh, people go home on a Friday with a paycheck. And they probably don't know that it's come out of an open platform on an open source tool set with a mainframe, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you look at our general manager, Ross Morey. Ross was the chair of the Linux Foundation before it was the Linux Foundation. So open source is baked into his DNA. You talk about um, the, the the other IBM you, you mentioned um, talking about. Open sourcing technology. Ross was instrumental in a huge donation. I think it probably the second largest donation IBM's made to open source after Eclipse, with um, what we donated with the anomaly detection engine. Right. Um, so we we gave up IBM intellectual property to the Linux an open source community. It's up there on GitHub, it's being um, pushed forward by the community now around anomaly detection. So, something we're particularly focused on is high availability. Yeah. So, we wanted to bring that to the open source community in general. Our labs have been working on um, operational analytics software that looked for abnormal patterns. So, that anomaly detection Um, software, that 70,000 lines of code, we felt was to the betterment of the industry as a whole. That's now up on GitHub. You go to the open mainframe projects uh, repo on on GitHub, you'll see the anomaly detection. You can get access to that code and push it forward with the rest of the community. So I think people would be surprised by that sentence or set of sentences. And wouldn't associate that with the mainframe business. But certainly yeah. Linux, it's, I think, now approaching um, just over 30% of the mainframe installations in the world also run Linux on those platforms. It's it reminds, the fastest growing part of our business, if you if you look at it. Reminds
0: me as a, a lifetime Trekkie of the uh, the Vulcan line that the needs of one, uh, or rather the needs of many will outweigh the needs of one, right? Right.
1: Um, Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that's if you can crowdsource development, and and that's really what the open source community is all about, being able to get people in their dorm rooms. So just to give you an example, you look at the Open Mainframe project intern program last year. We had one of the college students from Vietnam port Alpine Linux onto the platform. Now, if anybody knows their Docker the distribution that's embedded in Docker is, is Alpine Linux as a really cut-down distro. So that intern now is has gone back to college, and he's the maintainer of that code base as we look to move forward with, with Docker on the platform. So... It's a real meritocracy out there in the uh, open source community. This this kid picked it up as his project. He's now the industry expert on Alpine Linux running on the mainframe platform, wow. and it is, is is the is the maintainer of that code base. So there's lots of other IBMers supporting him, but yeah. you know he's the, he's the expert now, and really sort of bubbled to the top in that in in the technical community. And that's how you need to crowdsource this development and crowdsource. There'll be people who've got a particular interest, a particular piece of this technology is going to keep them up at night, coding till the early hours. And you need to harness that and get all of the eyeballs of the huge open source community, but bring that into the mainframe context. People. So where IBM's particularly focused is these four tenants, yeah. performance availability security and scale so you'll see us pushing the open source community forward in those four key areas
0: and it's interesting that you know if we if we unbundle that for a moment because there are a couple of amazing eureka moments i mean you had an intern uh, came out of college got a a, a, a tenure with ibm you gave him a fun project that fun project is a foundational component of of containerization and and orchestration and and um, the whole devops space and um, it runs on mainframe and I mean, <clears throat> that's a T-shirt in itself, and, and it's an amazing concept to think about that you know, other organisations might just you know faint at the mere idea of having an intern build some foundational piece of it, and yet here we've got an organisation saying, well, we've got an intern, they're very passionate about it, they're, willing as you said, willing to stay up all night and work on it, um, but they're also good at it, and now they're effectively the maintainer of the, of the project, and it's probably sitting in GitHub, and away they go. And yet in a year's time... Um, you know some some bank will deploy a, a, a new ATM system for card scanning for FPOS and terminals and, and, and automatic telemachines built on this in a container on Alpine Linux, under, under Docker, running on mainframe on Linux and have absolutely no idea how that came about. And and frankly, not even need to know, right? So that leads us to um, the whole Linux one thing. I mean, yeah, we've, we've sort of spoken broadly about cloud and kind of what it means in the, in the Z cloud and, and what you're driving what we've talked about. sort of the open mainframe project, which is the foundational piece of creating an open platform. Um, you're also in the world of, of Linux One and and the whole transition of Linux on the mainframe in, in a proper sense, and it's it's come from a whole range of different pieces of work from the relationship with SuSE. and Now you mentioned that Ubuntu's on board. Um, just give us a quick summary of what Linux One actually is. Where did it come from? What is it, and and kind of where where is it fitting in the big puzzle now? This sort of whole stack of cloud open mainframes, sort of you know Linux and then
1: the, the the ecosystem in general. So so Linux One is really f- uh, focused on. How do we bring those fundamentals of some of the mainframe design, those tenants around performance, availability, security, and scale to that Linux world? So how do we build that Linux-only environment but focusing on those areas? So the design point for Linux 1 is is really to push on some of those extremes, push on extremes of compute, performance, drive, availability for people, um, to places, you know, recovery point and recovery time objectives that they'd struggle to hit, you know, push beyond five nines availability um, deliver security. So yeah. just just give you an example. So um, IBM's high security business network for blockchain runs on a Linux one platform. So blockchain probably the coolest hottest hashtag you can attach to a tweet right now Um, every time i tweet about blockchain i end up with another five or six followers Um, (laughs) so there's there's a huge industry buzz around blockchain but when ibm was looking for a technology to support that blockchain deployment in the cloud they focused on linux one and and why is that just this ability as we're building trusted networks and business networks where people connect and, tr- and build the supply chains of the future, build the banking systems of the future, they're still going to need the same capabilities and the same um, functionality and that same maniacal focus on security, availability, performance and scale. So Linux 1 harnesses the best of the mainframe platform. And brings that to a Linux um, Linux deployment. Right. So, you, you know, you look at IBM messaging heavily at, at interconnectors you would have seen around blockchain. You trace that back to where it sits in a data center and what it actually runs on. It's running on a Linux one machine that shares a lot of its DNA with the same core banking systems that is running um, on those mainframe deployments. So... It's a Linux-only deployment. You know, it's not running any of the legacy operating systems, um, but it is certainly um, delivering on those core capabilities that lots of clients are looking for. So, you know, if you're looking to deploy Mongo at absolute scale, you know, you don't want to shard the database across thousands of servers and you want to deliver that Mongo database at absolute scale. Some of our benchmarks would say that running that on a Linux One platform is certainly the best platform to do that. You want to write in Node.js, you know, you want Ruby on Rails, you want to do a Hadoop project, you know, you're keen on Spark. You want to do all of those things, but in an absolute mission-critical enterprise computing-type environment, yeah, certainly recommend you look at Linux One. You you mentioned something interesting there
0: that really, uh, I wrote down, it it really hit a hot point for me. I mean, availability is, you know, we we make so many assumptions around availability that something's just going to be there. It always makes me laugh because it reminds me when my kids think about Wi-Fi and they think it should just be everywhere uh, and it should be free and it should just be like oxygen. Availability is one of those things that's just built into the DNA of some of the technologies we're talking about, but it isn't a given. And when you said, you know, taking something beyond five nines, I was like, well, oh, that's pretty brave because if we put that in context, I mean, even nine, you know, when we, and what, what what we're talking about here is like the, the percentile of 100%, right? So like two nines is 99% uptime, which... You know, off the top of my head, it's like 3.6 odd days a year of outage. In other words, if you're aiming for 99% uptime on a platform of any form, which is pretty impressive in itself, you're really talking about no more than about three and a half days a year where your system's allowed to be offline in, in a maintenance window, right? But three nines becomes even braver because it's, you know, it's and again, it's like it's what, eight, eight and a half eight point seven 8.7 hours or something like that. I can't do the math off the top of my head. I should do I'm data scientist. But anyway... Four nines gets ridiculous because now you're under an hour, so if you're 99.99% uptime a year and a 365 day a year, that's like 52 minutes of, of space where your system's allowed to be offline for any reason to do upgrades and patches and maintenance and reinstallation. When you get to five nines, you take a whole zero off that effectively because you get to 5.2 minutes or something from memory. So when you say pushing something like Linux beyond five nines, I, I, I want to call that out because it's a pretty brave thing, and it's something that IBM and the mainframe platform take for granted, but, you know, if I sit in a workshop in a startup and I start talking about two or three nines, they start to get fidgety. When I talk about, you know, five nines and, and the idea, they go, oh, well, you know, it's all DevOps as availability, but, you know, Amazon's been offline and Twitter's been offline um, and all these public clouds they have downtime, but... You can't do that in your world, can you? I mean, when you say pushing beyond five nines, I mean, if we go to six nines, that's like 31 seconds
1: of outage a year. Well, I mean, we've got clients who talk about their environments and the last unplanned... And and, and this is the distinction. It's planned and unplanned. Right. So, yep. you know, it's you may schedule an outage window, but it's that also the concept of unplanned outages... So we're talk. When I talk about five nines, I'm talking about planned and unplanned. Yeah. You know, you can upgrade a mainframe system while it's still doing processing. You know, all of these p- components as hot swappable and able to be, you know, taking processor boards out, memory boards, I/O boards, whilst the system's still up and running. You know, that's put that in context and, and of an analogy that's doing a heart and lung transplant on somebody whilst they're running a marathon
0: yeah yeah when did you last open up your personal computer at home and rip out the ram and swap in faster ram or new ram i mean
1: uh, I, yes. whilst it's whilst yeah. it's whilst you're doing a skype call to australia well, you know absolutely. that's the that's the yeah. context and so these i think for me one of the interesting things is why do people get out of bed in the morning in, in Poughkeepsie and other mainframe labs around the world? I'm a huge fan of Simon Sinek's TED talk on, on this concept of why. Right. And it, baked into the DNA of an IBMer who's on the mainframe platform is this f- maniacal focus on availability, performance, handling scale and security. Yep. We we, we're maniacally obsessed on those four things at the extreme. Now, that's not saying that, you know, the the guys in the lab at Intel and the guys working on software for, for Microsoft and the guys in Oracle aren't focused, but they're focused on a more general set of computing requirements. Right. You know, the guys in Intel developing chips. Those chips will find selves in a PC. They'll find themselves in a mid-range server. They'll find themselves in a high-end server. You know, we're only focused on the computing at the absolute extreme. Yeah. So when clients come to us, they, they tap into that DNA. And they, when they're wanting an environment that needs to operate in the extreme, that's where we can, we can help them with what we design.
0: Well, I, I remember doing a survey um, as early as 2015. Uh, uh, IDC drove the thing, and, and, and I got in the back of the tail of it and, and ran a local one here in Australia because the IDC one was predominantly North American-focused. And I think uh, IDC surveyed something like 350 CIOs in the U.S., uh, just around their technology stack and and what software they're running, and one of the takeaways I pulled out of it with context of today was that. But they were all using big data and they're all using cloud, uh, and it, and one of the things that, that jumped off off the page at me was like, well, hang on a second, those three hundred and fifty CIOs running mainframes—that's probably more than the total number of large Hadoop clusters on the planet. You know, there's lots and lots of hundreds of little tiny Hadoop clusters of three and six and twelve and thirty-two machines, but not at this scale, right? And you know, when we see uh, the likes of Spark coming out now. Uh, on on hardware on the on the z 13 which I'd like to ask you about in a second, all of a sudden there, there's no reason not to consider that as a platform. And it, and you're right about the DNA piece of of kind of you know your four core tenets of of performance and scale and security and availability. And you know it's in context in the world where you're running an airline or running a bank. You know there are things that you need to worry about. But the other end of the spectrum, you know, yesterday I was in a meeting with somebody and going through a power family, those 350 odd CIOs actually still owned and maintained. Happened. it happen. It automatically done an update in the background and rebooted itself. And it just reminded me that you know, that there's teams around the world who, yes, they're still focused on quality and still focused on various things, but it's apparently okay in their mind that if you're in the middle of a PowerPoint presentation and a one hour meeting with a CEO, that an update can automatically happen and reboot your computer. And, and to hell with everyone else. <laughs> um, so so I, I love the idea that you've taken this open platform around the open mainframe space. I love the idea you've taken the whole Linux and open source space. Now you're baking in that capability. And I do, I, I'm fascinated with the idea of going beyond five nines. What does um, what, you know, the future of, of the whole Linux one thing look like just in a couple of minutes? From today onwards, I mean, what are some of the things that we can expect to see out of Linux one over the next
1: sort of, you know, two, three to five years? Yeah, I mean, I think you're gonna see more and more Linux deployments require those capabilities. So as Linux kind of moves from the edges towards the core of organizations, as you know, that the benefits of crowdsourced development kind of find their way towards the core of computing environments, these systems of engagement, people are going to wake up and say, okay, it's a open source developed application running on a um, set of open source middleware, running on a Linux distro, yeah. but I still want it to be performant, I still want it to be available, I still want it to be secure. I still want all of those characteristics. I want to harness that open source and crowdsource development because those are the new cool things I need. But it's got to work, and it's got to work every day. It's got to be tamper-proof. It's got to be encrypted. It's got to be secure. It's got to be able to scale. You know, to the absolute extremes, it's got to be able to handle s- Cyber Mondays and Black Fridays and yeah. all, of these, all of these spikes. So I want the best of both worlds. I want l- the, um, the, the tagline for Linux 1 back when it was launched was Linux without limits.
0: I like and it that.
1: Sounds, it sounds cheesy and it's a tagline and it was created by some bright guys in our marketing department but that's really where i'd think i'd sort of focus in people's minds it's linux but you haven't got those limits you haven't got those architectural limits you haven't got those challenges to architect around to drive availability performance scale and security
0: yeah and and each of those underpinning foundational tenets are things that we we really need to start assuming are uh, baked in because i think when we look at you know you, you talked about security you talked about some of the, the the challenges that we're facing now around data leaks data breaches in the uk recently there was talk talk who's like a, a voip phone provider and whatnot they had of their customers uh have all their data breached not just their basic usernames passwords and yesterday we saw a platform called edmodo which is a an online web-based uh, education training uh, and sort of like a, a, a dumbed-down Twitter and Facebook for kids. 90-odd thousand uh, records lost, full dump. But we're not now talking about you and I with a credit card or something trivial that a bank can hedge against and just you know self-fund the insurance. We're talking about my 12-year-old son, for example, who has an Edmodo account. His first name, last name, email address and anything else around the profile is now out there. And you can never unwind that right. Um, now, I'm not poo-pooing the uh, the, the sort of you know, what's happening in the bleeding edge of, of public cloud and hybrid cloud, but I am certainly not happy about the fact that I get an email from Edmodo saying that my son, who's 12, has had his data breached from their platform, and the biggest thing they can, the greatest thing they can do from that is ask us to reset the password. Right? That just doesn't wash in this space, and and particularly you know when we're rushing quickly at all these new exciting technologies. When we, if we, if we, one of the things I'd like to talk about is is the general sense of the ecosystem around the mainframe space that you're in i mean when we think about the global offering manager of of z cloud or z cloud as your job title it's a very broad thing but if we if we sort of skip from cloud to sort of the the open mainframe and then linux one into the broad ecosystem of mainframe um what, What's the breadth and scope of that whole ecosystem? I mean, what does what if if you were to walk into a room and do a speed date introduction, how would you describe that entire mainframe ecosystem in today's context? What does it sound like and look like?
1: Well, you've got everything from some of the biggest providers of um, computer and storage technology as ecosystem partners, the likes of EMC and HDS, Brocade and Cisco, um, from the hardware connect. Type perspective, you've got um, over a hundred probably mainframe software developers, the likes of the big names like CA and BMC and CompuAir and SAS um, software AG. Yeah, you know, the, the business that people would associate with, but then you've got this huge plethora of um, open source providers, so Ubuntu, Red Hat, SUSE. Um, you've got Mongo, Postgres, Cassandra, um, Elk, Ruby on Rails. You know, I just could reel them off. All of the that open yeah. source sort of cool kids, as you will, um, in the industry, you know, um, OpenStack running on the platform. So I think... The ecosystem for me is probably as broad as, as it could be. One of the things that I find interesting is, you know, people talk about the mainframe as a closed proprietary system that only comes from IBM and they yeah. kinda of throw that throw that back at us as an objection. Well, X eighty six runs two operating system main flavors. If you it runs Windows and it runs Linux. Well, we run Linux. We run TPF, we run VSE, we run ZOS. Yep. You know, so, yes, most of those operating systems come from IBM, but you can also run open source on this platform. So I think, yes, we're the provider of the hardware, but we've we've got people whose job title it is and get out of bed every morning trying to promote the ecosystem on the platform. Yeah. You know, We've got a VP whose role it is, a huge team of 60-plus of people who focus on open-source development on the platform um, from a, engaging with the open-source community, a wider Linux um, industry team that we draw on. So there's a huge team focused on developing and pushing forward this ecosystem. Right. So thinking of it as a closed proprietary technology, I just don't get out of bed and think of it that way yeah. at all. I think of it as a, as a something that's driven by IBM to a set of sort of technical specs and driven to a market requirement, but then is also exposed out to a huge ecosystem of providers who then build on top of what IBM develops and take it into new spaces. So you know, Spark running on ZOS, not just on on Linux on the platform. You know, so being able to run Spark. Providing that analytics and some of that big data at the point of impact. So running, for instance, analytics on yesterday's data is mildly interesting. Yeah. Being able to run analytics whilst I'm standing at the point of sale and say, would you like fries with that? And it not just be the generic question of would you like fries with that, but actually what's showing up is... Somebody knows I've ordered fries the last three times I was at the point of sale, but I've not got fries in front of me today. Yeah, You know, being able to actually drive those types of purchase and upsell decisions because you've got the data presented at the point of impact, that's what we can do by performance and availability and scale but also leveraging things like Spark on the platform. And it's interesting,
0: you know, it's important to call out that when you said you're running Spark on the platform I and mean, you're running it natively on the mainframe operating system, you don't have to run it inside Linux, you don't have to run it on some other operating system. I mean, you've ported Spark to the native platform. It runs essentially in the DNA of the mainframe OS. And, you know, I think that's something that it probably gets skipped over. I mean, when you think about the, the, the TPC capabilities that the, the processing grunt that comes with the mainframe DNA and the mainframe pedigree to port something like stream analytics on something like spark directly to the mainframe natively, uh, is a quantum leap ahead of kind of what's happening on some of the other platforms where maybe just, you know, one or two things are being ported. Um, you know, and I'm imagining it wasn't an intern that did it like the you know, Alpine thing. Um, it was a big team. It was yeah. A big yeah. Team for sure. But, um, you know, when you think about the context of porting something like spark, uh, to mainframe native, um, and you know, as you said, it's a big team. Somebody had to sit there and go, well, what, what new technologies should we be putting on this stack inside this ecosystem, and then approach the open source community that build that um, and, and essentially sell the idea and then get them on board and, and get them running with it? Because I think a lot of people forget that open source, even though there's a whole bunch of us around the world that write tools, code, scripts, whatever, and we open source them, that for you know for the better part of the the bulk of people working on open source they actually work for companies like IBM and they get a salary and they've got permission to work on open source stuff and the code base for streaming analytics on the mainframe platform natively that have made its way back into the code base and back into GitHub that when someone does a build and a make
1: it benefits other chipsets. Um, and, and Definitely. I, you know, I and, mean, just to just to stop and dive in there, this We we did a call recently with the Open Mainframe Project. It's about a year ago now, maybe even longer than that. With Greg Koa Hartman, right? If anybody, you know, if you're a if you're a Linux guy, he's kind of next down from Linus in the in the pecking order. So he's the the kernel maintainer, you know, one of the one of the gods of the open source community. Yeah. So we did a call with him a, a just general Q and A, and he said it was it was interesting because he made exactly the same point that you made that when IBM's kind of taking the the kernel and running it on the mainframe, we're running it in a a way that highlights some of the deficiencies. So when he gets code back from the IBMers who work in an open source space, it's adding to the overall code base of that Linux kernel. Because we're pushing it on the extremes, pushing it for availability, pushing it for security, you know, looking at some of those things and turning them and, and this'll appeal to you, turning the dial to eleven. The sort of <laughs> spinal, spinal the spinal the <laughs> spinal tap kind of <laughs> reference. But when we're turning that dial to eleven for for some of the workloads that we've run, we find things that just the general purpose computing guys don't find. Yeah, And then we contribute them back and they, to the betterment of the overall Linux kernel as it moves forward. So that was a really interesting point that that Greg made that kind of stopped us all on the call and went, if that's the owner of the Linux kernel saying that unprompted about the contributions he gets back from IBM, that really kind of goes back to this, why do we get out of bed in the morning, this kind of Simon Cynic What's the what's the why that gets you out of, and gets you out of bed and brings you to work every day? That that's really that focus within IBM on on some of those extremes.
0: And you know uh, we should put um, Greg Crow, um, I can never pronounce his last name right, Crow Hartman, uh, in context I mean, you mentioned that he's like you know essentially the the second god of of Linux. I mean, he's a guy who's, I mean, you know, he's essentially a, a Linux kernel developer at the high level, but I mean, he's the maintainer. Of the stable branch of the entire stack, um, plus other subsystems, I mean everything from like you know and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like you know, across everything from the the USB interconnectivity and drivers, he's got debug file system uh, all the way up to to text terminal drivers and so this guy's the part of the DNA of the operating system if he's sitting up and saying, we, you know we're seeing good things come back from your code um, I mean it doesn't I don't think there's any higher. Um, uh, you know positive comment and that you could possibly get a higher praise is the phrase I was looking for, um, barring Linus saying something. And then he's often a bit of a, a grumpy fellow anyway. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, you
0: can say that I can't. No, I can say that. Um, you know, and 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 look, you know, we all love him and, and love what he does, but he does tend to fire from the hip. But I, uh, you know, if Greg's saying that about what you're doing, then that you know that is the single highest praise in that space. Uh, and and here's a guy who's come through. I um, mean, you know. Where did he start? Like Novell from memory, and then you know, he's gone through SuSE, and um and uh, I think he's inside the Linux Foundation directly now, isn't he? From memory,
1: yeah, he's a he's a fellow of the the Linux Foundation, yeah. so he's I think he's full time working for those guys. So he, he's not beholden to, he doesn't pick a paycheck up from anybody else. So I, I yep. think uh, that was also kind of what resonated for me, and. A lot of people sort of question Linux on the mainframe. Oh, you must do something special to it. It must be a different flavor of Linux. Right. It must be some kind of weird, emulated offshoot of Linux. But then, you know, on that call with Greg, he was saying, no, it's the kernel. It's right. the same kernel that everybody else runs. It's And you look at chatting to the guys at Ubuntu. I mean, they've got out of the phone business now, but it was exactly the same Linux running on a phone. A PC, an Enterprise X86 box, yeah. and the mainframe. It was Ubuntu on all of those platforms. You know, so it's Linux. One of the phrases our guys tend to use is "it's Linux, it's Linux, it's Linux." Yeah, <laughs> you almost need the repetition to get across the point of, no, it's not anything weird it is linux and, and it just runs natively on our platform
0: developers will get the reference to uh, a microsoft that might have stood on stage going developers 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 but it is it's linux and it's linux and it's linux and uh you know we've seen it running on smartwatches, we've seen it running on calculators it's in damn cars it's in airplanes it's in in, in ships it's in autonomous vehicles and it's on mainframe uh and and i think the the thing that a lot of people don't appreciate it was when we talk about linux you know, we're talking about Linux, the kernel itself that drives the operating system. That essentially the DNA and the heart and soul of it, and the mind of it. And then it's wrapped up in, in a whole bunch of good free software from from all different walks of life for, for everything from file systems. Because you know, there's more than one file system you can run on the Linux kernel. There's um, lots of free software. You know, all these different distros. So in many ways, what you've really done is is effectively created a, a mainframe distro in the same way that there's, you know, Fedora and, and Red Hat Enterprise and there's Ubuntu and there's, you know, we spoke about Alpine and there's Debian and there's dozens of them, right? and um, But it doesn't change the code base, right? It's just that you port it. You, you put it on your compiler and you make a binary and you run it and install it, right? Yeah, I think,
1: and don't quote me on the exact percentage, but I think it's about just under 3% difference. And that difference will be device drivers. Yeah. So obviously what the operating system calls to complete its compute and I.O. and storage. So really those kind of how do you go fetch a piece of data, how do you compute, how do you finish your calculation, those device drivers. And those will change whether you're running it on a watch, on a phone, on a PC, on an enterprise server anyway. Those device drivers will change. So that's all that changes when you take linux and run it on the mainframe platform and it's and about that's, th- just under three percent
0: right and that's no different from anywhere else right as you said you know if you port linux to a, a small device like a watch it doesn't need to know how to talk to a line printer potentially or it doesn't need to know how to talk to a 3270 uh, terminal emulation it's just talking to a tiny you know 400 by 300 pixel screen um and um uh, you know, I would say for every platform, as far as I'm concerned, having been in this space myself for a long time, um, uh, every single platform I've ever seen where Linux is ported to, it, the piece that changes is how you get the device drivers, interfaces talking to something that's specific on that platform. Um, but the operating system doesn't really change. Or if you do find a patch or a fix, you roll it up into the core code base and someone approves it and then it comes back to you and you compile it, right? A lot of new startups and a lot of new companies don't really fully appreciate... When we say ecosystem in, a, in an organization like IBM and and, and many of your, your um, brethren in, in that sort of you know, rarefied air uh, of a very very large company, it, the ecosystem is is everything from um, you know the, the 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 DNA, the brand itself, IBM, all the way to its partners and integrators and uh, independent software vendors and resellers and channel partners and developers and then open sourcing that it's almost a case with you know something the size of ibm i mean the tendrils reach into all kinds of interesting places that we don't expect and i'm always fascinated when i talk to firms and i and next thing they say on oh, by the way that we're an ibm partner and uh, it's like oh of course you are um but i mean the ecosystem that you live you, give us a visual if you can of the scope of what that ecosystem looks like because i don't i think many people listening probably don't fully appreciate what not just your role as global offering manager for, for Z Cloud means, but the ecosystem that you're part of and that, you, that that drives all of that uh, gl- around the world across different platforms and, and, and different systems that talk to your environment.
1: So just just let's look on, on this week. Um, three independent software vendors. So as we approach clients, as they look to make the transition from on-premise single tenant mainframe to a multi-tenant mainframe off-premise in the cloud, that is, that's an impact on how they license particular software that runs on their mainframe. So just this week alone, three calls with um, senior VPs within um, mainframe software vendors about how we manage that transition as to support our mutual clients. So in some cases, IBM is competing with that software vendor Right. Um, and you know so that's it's a co-optition type model where we're working together for the betterment of our clients but in another part of our business we're competing you know tooth and nail for the the clients spend on software so you know it's a real evolved model so I'm talking about striking strategic partnerships with mainframe software vendors um, and another part of IBM's looking to Kind of gouge gouge the eyes out of, of those software vendors. So right. that 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 really sort of gives a dynamic there. Yeah, yeah. Earlier the, uh, earlier this week, as part of the Open Mainframe Project, collaborating with HDS. How do we go and push forward on some of the new innovative technologies that are coming through in the storage space? So you know, IBM collaborating in the open source community with with HDS, and then. Only earlier today talking to the CEO of a business partner who's looking to resell RZ Cloud capability. So that, that, that CEO is seeing the shift to the cloud, wanting to transform his business so that he can support where his clients are wanting to go. And talking to him about how we enable this offering to be sold via his business and him wrap additional value for, the, for his clients, leveraging his skill base and his knowledge and his organisation's kind of core competencies around my core offering. So, I mean, that's just one week and it's been a relatively quiet week <laughs> 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 um, um, some would argue. It's certainly not the same week as Interconnect a few weeks ago but no. that, that's just a number of ISVs, number of different business partners. So that, that's just the scale and breadth and depth of the of what it means to, for, for me as an offering manager to be working with I, within ibm and kind of operate in this ecosystem you know IBM's not the only game in town for these clients and nor should we think we are we we, we bring additional value when we partner so it's, yeah. it's really how do we do that best for our clients I,
0: th- I think you know i mean once upon a time there was a phrase that no one got fired for buying ibm that phrase doesn't really have any context now because as you said um, CIOs and whomever else in the organization, I mean they're making decisions on technologies based on a whole range of different drivers. I mean, you know, database is a database in many ways but there are different types of databases. There's, you know, no SQL and SQL and there's um, t- databases are designed for time series type data sets and those databases just designed for basic uh, you know field and row and record and table for for a CRm or h r platform and When they go and choose those technologies, they then maybe go further down the track and they they find a partner of IBM and then they might find the a hardware platform to go so I think you know, I think the challenge for that ecosystem now is is what you 're already addressing around the staying current, staying relevant, driving innovation getting involved in that whole open source crowdsourcing space that everyone's, uh, you know, moving towards. And I don't think there's going to be a, a collapse of the proprietary software market. I think it's just a shift in engagement. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think all software is going to be free one day, but I, I certainly think there's a, we've seen a shift to that. Um, although had somebody come up with Spark and, and made a proprietary version, I, I imagine it would have had relatively similar adoption. Um, in, in closing what I'd really love you to do is give us a three to five minute summary where you think mainframe is going to be uh, sort of you know crystal ball gazing and we won't hold you to it um, if you were going to give us a view of where this whole space you're in around IBM and and uh, that sort of you know the the transition to the cloud uh, I guess um you know s- cloud styler business if we say the cloud approach that the you know what we used to call utility computing you know just pay as you go um, where the whole open mainframe space is going the any impact that linux one's going to have on that if you were to look over the the horizon and and say in three to five years this is where we'll be off the top of your head what does that even remotely look like is that possible to sort of scope that out or you know where will we be in three years where will we be in five years and and and, you know what does that look like particularly in the context of your role and, and where you are inside ibm
1: well i mean you're gonna in this sort of early part of the next um of that time horizon you're gonna see IBM bringing to to bear our next latest system you know so that's going to be the next sort of quantum leap in in computing leveraging again those four key tenants, particularly security, availability scale and performance. so just pushing further on that envelope so you know have the pleasure of sitting in the lab and seeing the guys get excited as they as they push towards. That next kind of release of the technology, so so that's going to shape the near-term horizon, and then I think you're going to see just a continual move towards the platform of some of these open-source type environments. As open-source matures and and starts to move towards the core, it's going to need some of those those key tenants of, of what the mainframe's designed for. Yeah. So 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 that so those are things I'd see, and then you're going to see this push to more consumption-based models, people wanting um, not only their core mainframe workloads delivered on the cloud, but also microservices. You know, you've seen blockchain as uh, as a first example of that. Other microservices built on this architecture that are specifically designed that need those characteristics that I've talked about throughout this session. So, if there's a service that needs particular security, you know that I could envisage on the platform, particular um, maybe databases or data analytics type capabilities that delivered as a microservice, you know, via BlueMix in a public cloud. And people don't realise that they're consuming a workload that's that's ultimately running on a mainframe architecture. So I'd see that. I'd see. Um, clients deploying private clouds. So some of our largest clients are maybe never going to make that transition to the public cloud, even for mainframe on MySpace. My so they're going to be wanting to deploy private clouds, leveraging all the same technology I'm leveraging in the public space to deliver a mainframe cloud, but do that on-premise. Right. So you're going to see, I think, some of the smaller clients moving towards an off-premise model. Some of the bigger clients are going to continue to evolve and stay where they are from a from a private cloud perspective. Right. So I think microservices, Linux, open source, and then just this move from private or, or public cloud, that's what I'd see over that next three to
0: five years. Um, and, and thanks for that great over the horizon view because i you know I, I agree with all those points you just made we've got big things like gdpr coming along out of europe and, and we used to have the eu us data shield but that really was a toothless tiger in my view now the gdpr is becoming um you know it's been around for 12 years but now that it's becoming a an empowered uh, regulatory framework and you, know, you can be fined i think it's like 20 million euros or four percent of your your last year's uh, gross turnover on a per a single breed talking about that because I think you're, you're called tenants as you're... It's 150,000 multiplied by either 20 million euros or 4% of your last year's turnover. People are going to start looking, saying, okay, well, we now need to have a really serious think about where we put the stuff because where can we find these key things you're talking about? So that sort of, you know, security and privacy is a given. And when we think about cloud and, and certainly what's happening around um, smart infrastructure, smart cities, autonomous vehicles and IoT... Again, the scale at which IoT is going to impact the planet, I really, you know, I I, I refuse to believe that very few people fully understand the impact of IoT. I I like using the example of the Boeing Dreamliner 787 when it first came out, and, you know, they declared that this aeroplane generated half a terabyte of data per flight. So I did some quick math, and and as an example, when I, I do public speaking occasionally, I draw this picture where it says, you know, Here's a Dreamliner 787 released a number of years ago. It generates half a terabyte of data. This thing's got 4,000 IoT-styled sensors in, in the wings and the body. It clicks data in real time. If we look at the domestic airspace, the U.S. alone, there's 87,400 flights a day. Now, the, the FAA has is de, is, is decree, decreed that by 2018, I think it's March or April 2018, every aircraft and every airline has to have their... Uh, infrastructure in their airlines and aircraft up to the same level of BIOS, if you like, as the Dreamliner 787. So do the math. 87,400 flights a day in the domestic airspace in the U.S. generating half of terabyte a terabyte of data. That's 43.5 petabytes of data. Um, now, that was a really big, scary number, but, but it, Airbus wasn't going to be outdone because they came out with one that's got like 10 or 12,000 sensors. So if you end up with the same level of BIOS as that airplane, the same math, now you got 22 petabytes of data a day um, this is not going to happen in the public cloud, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just you know, and, and people talk about oh, you know, uh, Yahoo's got one hundred and ten petabytes, or someone, you know, Facebook, one hundred and forty petabytes. Say, so, well, that's three days worth of processing in the old school airplane alone in the latest bias of the of the airplanes that say from Airbus, you know, the domestic airspace is 220 petabytes a day. Now, obviously, we're not going to capture and collect it all, but you've still got to process it. So I can see that, you know, out of your core tenants around security and, and protection, privacy and so forth, the GDPR is just going to wake a lot of people up. The IoT is going to be this big bloody nose that everyone's going to have because we're creating sensors on everything, but no one's thought about how it's going to go across the network, where you're going to collect and, and, and aggregate it, where you're going to do that analytics. Um, and then when you think about the next big thing you mentioned, which is blockchain, again, it's another massive thing that I, I, you know, I don't think that everyone's going to have to understand blockchain because it's going to be built into the DNA in the same way that SSL is with TCP and, and, and you know, web sessions to a bank. Um, But the people making the systems and building the software are going to have to think about it because all of a sudden we're going to change the way that the the design patterns are are, are put in place. And when you create a web connection, SSL may no longer be relevant. Maybe use blockchain for some of that that underpinning logging and tracking. So I think it's an interesting time and your your takeaways are really relevant around the next three to five years. Uh, And I suspect we've got another two or three shows ahead of us talking on just those key things. Um, so why don't we wind it up there and, um, and schedule ourselves some more time to catch up to some of those big points, but really exciting to hear what's happening around just the IBM ecosystem, what you're doing in the cloud and the open mainframe space, and particularly Linux and Linux One, uh, and, and in your role of global offering manager of, of, of the Z Cloud, I can only imagine you know, what's over the horizon for you. So Stephen Dickens, thanks so much for making time available, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast, and uh, I hope we have the pleasure of having you on the air again soon.
1: Yeah, look, it's been great to talk Des, and really keen to talk again in the future. So uh, just thanks for the opportunity.
0: Oh, you're most welcome and thanks for making time. And we will definitely do follow-ups and we'll turn it into a series. So look, I hope you have a fantastic evening. It's going to be a great day in my sense. And uh, folks, if you're listening, I hope you've gotten a great deal from that. And uh, we'll definitely get Stephen Dickens, the uh, Global Offering Manager for Z Cloud at IBM, on the air again soon, talking about some of these other topics. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you again.